Today's dead idea, the Boy Scouts of Feudal Japan. What is that? I don't really even know. I, <laughs> I've, I've got a Public Domain Theater 3000 article that I've been saving for an opportune moment and no time like the present. I want to find out what in the hell they're talking about because I've never heard of these guys and I can't find them anywhere online. And I, I don't, I have no idea what this is going to be about. <laughs> That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. We're back with another episode of Public Domain Theater 3000, where we read public domain works because we can and no one can sue us for it. <laughs> um, if you're looking for the Cuneum Forum series, don't worry, it'll be right back next week. As I announced last week, we're going to a different uh, publishing schedule where we do the main epic series every other week, and then in the off weeks, we do something different for a variety, so that's what we're doing today. So we're doing a Public Domain Theater 3000. I hope you enjoy it. And we may or may not have a dead idea today because what this article is, it is a 1914 article entitled The Boy Scouts of Feudal Japan, and I have no idea what it's about. It, it's about, I browsed it, I don't read these articles in depth when I do Public Domain Theater 3000 because it's supposed to be you and I encountering it for the first time at the same time. So I, I haven't read this, but I've browsed it, and it's something about something called the Shah. And it's um, something, a holdover from feudal Japan. This has nothing to do with the Boy Scouts Association, with the, you know, I, w I was a Cub Scout when I was a kid, and, you know, you know what Boy Scouts are. It's not that. I know that much. But what is it? I don't know. And that's why I... The fire has been lit under my ass to read this article and to do it as an episode because there's not a more pure example of of the public domain theater style here of encountering something for the first time as this. So maybe we'll discover some interesting tradition of Japan that no longer exists, or maybe this will be something that never did exist and this 1914 author got it totally wrong. <laughs> I, I really don't know yet. And I, what, what's really interesting to me is, so I actually know a little bit about Japanese culture. I lived in Japan for five years. Uh, I lived in Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island, and I was uh, teaching English at the time. And I learned to speak the language, and I traveled around, and I learned a fair amount about the, um, about the culture. I've never heard of the Shah. I don't know what this guy is talking about. And I've tried to search for it online, and I can't find anything. Part of that is because in the article, all they seem to refer to them as is the Shah, S-H-A. And here's the thing about the Japanese language. You have no idea what a tiny little particle like that is supposed to mean unless you can see the actual Japanese character, the kanji. And that's partly because those characters were brought over from Chinese, which is a tonal language, and Japanese is not. So what happens when you borrow over 50% of your vocabulary from a tonal language and import it into a language that is not tonal? You get a lot of words that mean completely different things and all sound the same. <laughs> so 
the, without knowing, without seeing the kanji, I can't even look it up, and it's not really Googleable because it's just S H A. Neither is Boy Scouts of Feudal Japan because that just brings up gobs and gobs of web pages about you know the Boy Scouts, the modern Boy Scouts that happen to be you know chapters of it in Japan. So I can't find anything about this. So I'm really interested to see what we're gonna find in this article here. Okay, <laughs> so. Um, if this sounds like a potential train wreck, you might be right. We are going to see you're you're it's on you, the listener, for actually just not turning this episode off at this point. If you're not turning it off right now, you are just as guilty as I am here. <laughs> All right. Okay, so this is an article from 1914 from a publication called The Outlook. And uh, the author is C.A. Hibbard, and it's entitled The Boy Scouts of Feudal Japan. And let's see what he has to say. So, it starts off, Kagoshima, whose 500 years of history boast many interesting events. And Kagoshima is a place I've actually visited. Kagoshima is way, way in the south part of Japan. Um, not quite as far south as all those dinky little islands like where karate originally comes from, the Ryukyu Islands, but it's pretty darn close. And it was an awesome place to go because Kagoshima actually has one of the most regularly erupting volcanoes in the world. It's, it's kind of like Old Faithful, the geyser like that. It's just like clockwork. And <laughs> it's so much so that, that people in Kagoshima carry around umbrellas, not for rain, but for ash, because you'll be walking around, and by the time you get home, you have all this ash kind of on your suit shoulders and stuff. So they carry around umbrellas for that. And before I actually went to Japan, I saw an Omni Theater movie about the Pacific Ring of Fire, you know, all those volcanoes, and Kagoshima was featured in there in one little, in one little clip, and it was hilarious because it was a perfectly blue sky and in the foreground were these like little league kids just hitting the ball around and you know having a blast. And in the background, here was this volcano going <laughs> just exploding. <laughs> so that's that's the place that we're talking about here. Obviously a little bit back in time, but that's Kagoshima. Okay, all right, enough asides for now. <clears throat> so the author begins. Kagoshima whose 500 years of history boast many interesting events, is the old castle town of the Satsuma Barons. Situated at the southern extremity of the southernmost island of the Japanese archipelago, it is still free from many influences that have trammeled the feudalism of the other provinces. Here it was that, one evening soon after my arrival, I first made acquaintance with the Shah, who may be called the Boy Scouts of Feudal Japan. Returning from a jaunt into the countryside, I found an unwanted bustle in the streets and was startled by an almost instantaneous bursting forth of flames in a score of places throughout the city. Huh. The first blaze proved to be a bonfire of torn and crippled paper umbrellas. It was surrounded by twenty or thirty boys, several of whom, as I approached, doffed their caps in salutation of their new teacher. Good evening, sensei. Good evening. Why the fires? Oh, it was this night many years ago a very brave deed was done, replied the eldest of the boys. Yes, and what was that deed? 
Well, a very bad man had killed a very good man named Soga. <laughs> I'm not going to try to do a little boy Japanese accent. That's why somehow I'm just slipping into what always sounds like just some bad period drama accent. Um, anyway, no apologies. This Soga had two sons. We say Soga Kyodai, Soga brothers, that means. And one dark night in spring, it was very, very dark night. The wind was very, very noisy. These brothers went out to kill the man who had killed their father. And was this in Kagoshima? No, not Kagoshima. A small place near Mount Fuji. Mount Fuji is, of course, more in central Japan. It was very dark, bad night, and these boys could not see to go to this bad man's house. By the way, I'm just reading it straight as this 1914 author has written it. So if there's anything here that sounds a little bit, you know, <laughs> that's just how the article is written. They had no chochin. You know chochin? That is Japanese lantern we use at night. They had no lantern, so they burned their paper umbrellas, and then they found this bad man's house and killed him with their swords. So we on this day, always in the fifth month, we burn kasa, so we not forget this brave deed. You like this custom? I think it is well to remember brave deeds of the past, but revenge? And here I stopped, fearing the deep water ahead for a man attempting to explain to a Satsuma youth that there are nobler forms of bravery than those prompted by revenge. Does everyone in Japan do this on this evening? Oh no, only in Kagoshima. The students in the Sha do this. They like very much Soga Kyodai. This unique ceremony made me interested to learn something of the organization and purpose of an institution so evidently fostering the ideas of past centuries. This unique ceremony made me interested to learn something of the organization and purpose of an institution so evidently fostering the ideas of past centuries. On leaving the academy grounds one afternoon, I caught up with a group of students swinging along in my direction. Each of the lads wore the skirt-like hakama, and that's those great big traditional pants that you sometimes see in like um, I don't know if they wear them in kabuki or not, but some of the some of the more traditional Japanese drama kind of things. Each of the lads wore the skirt like hakama and carried over his shoulder a fencing foil from which were suspended different fencing paraphernalia. I'm sure they mean kendo there when they say fencing. To their polite salutation with removed caps. I replied with the strictly Japanese greeting, Where are you going? To our shah, sir, for fencing. Well, that's good sport. Might I go with you? Yes, please. Only our shah is a very poor building, and you will see nothing interesting there. With this, I fell in with them. After a few minutes' walk through the narrow streets lined by high stone walls in a manner peculiar to the southern city, we turned in through a gateway and entered a spacious compound which at the time presented a scene of pandemonium. A lively place, it is. The playground is full of lads clustered in groups around the contestants in their favorite sports. One group shuts in a couple of lithe-limbed lads, naked except for loincloths, who are tussling and tugging in the clumsy Japanese wrestling. Well, I wouldn't call it clumsy, but maybe it seemed that way to him. In another section of the yard, the jiu-jitsu enthusiasts are tripping and throwing each other silently, while the more noisy fencers... Oh, I bet they're talking about sumo. Yeah, they're probably talking about sumo, which, if you see little kids doing it, it's kind of funny because, obviously, they're, you know, skinny as hell. <laughs> um, anyway, 
In another section of the yard, the jujitsu enthusiasts are tripping and throwing each other silently, while the more noisy fencers scattered over the exercise ground are enclosed in by little knots of spectators who every now and then give vent to short, jerky exclamations of encouragement and praise. Overall is heard the clash of the bamboo broadswords used by the combatants. After a few interesting moments watching the different sports, my guides invited me to see their house. The building, a low, one-story structure of the customary Japanese style of architecture, was given over almost entirely to one large hall. The whole place was even more void of furniture than the Japanese home, the room being fitted out with nothing more than the usual straw mats. Um, that must be the, um, oh, what's it called? God, uh, oh, I'm so rusty. Tatami, duh. They must mean tatami mats, I'm sure. And a few small tables to be used during study hours. The flower decorations, the fine wall kakemono. Kakemono, that would be the, like, hanging scrolls and that sort of thing and the delicate woodwork which give the Japanese house its dignity and simple beauty were wanting here. These things belong to the woman's province. Hmm. And the Shah member rises at four in the morning of the coldest winter month to practice his fencing and jujitsu for the very purpose of showing that there is nothing of the feminine about him. I don't know what tons and tons of uh, Japanese monks, not to mention... Um, actual feudal samurai <laughs> during the peace periods would say about those things being feminine, uh, but nevertheless, that's what he writes. I, that might be more of a statement of his perspective on it as a Western perspective of gender roles rather than Japanese per se. Not to say that Japanese don't have extremely traditional and kind of overly rigid gender roles. They certainly do, but that I'm not sure would be an accurate perception from my experience anyway. Our little party was joined by two older lads, whom I afterwards found to be an authority on that particular afternoon. The control of the society is in the hands of these elder members, who act as coaches in the athletics and tutors in the educational work. Huh. They've got like a senpai or older brother kind of respect going on in how they actually organize the... Huh. Yeah, so I'm... That's interesting. So in, in Japan... Um, Senpai and kyodai are a, a big deal. Kyo, senpai means older brother, kyodai, little brother, younger brother. Senpai and kohai. Senpai, older brother, kohai, little brother. God damn it, I'm rusty. <laughs> okay, let's get it right this time. Respect for your even older siblings is a really big deal, kind of coming out of the whole Confucianism thing. Here, it seems that even within their club that they have going on here, it's the, the the senior members, the senior kids, who actually do the coaching? That's kind of interesting. These youths are in turn responsible to the quote-unquote scout master, as he would be called in America or England, one of the samurai of the district. And I wonder if he means actually of samurai descent. I, I don't know if they would actually track this at that point? Well, certainly their families would, would know. They'd sure they'd keep that distinction. But I wonder how much he actually means samurai, samurai. Because obviously the, the what you think of from the movies is no longer a thing in 1914. But this is pre-World War II here. In fact, it's even just on the eve of World War I, in fact. And there's still a lot of that traditional 
culture, a lot of that traditional, um, you know, distinctions and prestige, I'm sure that families would remember who among them were samurai and who were not. Certainly so. These headmen are often retired army officers of very worthy position and spend much of their time with the Shah, giving to it that spirit which plays so large a part in its life. The superintendent of the society ranked as a general of Manchurian forces during the late war. Um, I wonder if that would be the Russo-Japanese War. I think probably so. It is impossible to give any definite date for the origin of these societies. It seems probable, however, that these Sha, or Boy Scouts, of feudal Japan, as I prefer to think of them, first came into prominence at the close of the 16th century, when Japan was warring with Korea. These campaigns drained Satsuma of her fighting classes, and the fathers and elder brothers going to the wars left the young blood of the province under the tutelage of the women and old men. Fearing a weakness in the use thus left to feminine care and indulgence, Niro Tadamo, the, the Sir Philip Sidney of Satsuma knighthood, organized, I don't know who even Philip Sidney is, much less Tadamo, but the Sir Philip Sidney of Satsuma knighthood organized, or perhaps better developed, societies in the different parts of the city for the training of the samurai sons. As time went on, each society in the general organization became a distinct unit sufficient unto itself. A spirit of exclusiveness grew up which would make the rivalry of present-day college fraternities seem puerile. The lads of one district were forbidden to associate with those of another, and many are the stories of bloodletting on the streets at an affront either fancied or real offered by a member of one society to another. The bridge over the serene, lotus-covered moat surrounding the present 7th Higher School is said to have been the scene of one of the fiercest of these encounters. The members of two Shah, at the number of about 50, on their way to the central fortifications of the city, elbowed each other in passing over the bridge. With a true D'Artagnan resentment, each youth imagined himself insulted. Swords were drawn. The fight which took place left some three or four mortally wounded. The whole affair was suppressed only when a detachment of men-at-arms from the castle engaged in the fray to cool the too fierce ardor of the youngster's spirit. Huh. So, so far, these, these Shaw seem... It doesn't just seem like dojos of, like, just martial arts or kendo or something. It does seem like something unique and different. Hmm. With the restoration... And the restoration would be the Meiji Restoration in the 19th century, I think that happened, which basically returned power to the emperor after having been in the hands of the shoguns for, I don't know, almost a thousand years, probably. That would be the Meiji Restoration. With the restoration, the raison d'etre of this old institution disappeared. Feudal principles have largely vanished and the Shah lives today chiefly in its traditions. Okay, so in other words, if I'm picking up what they're laying down, it was the Shah were originally made to kind of keep boys uh, military ready, to give them the training, even though the, the experts in that military training were away at war over in Korea. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's couched in this kind of like chauvinistic thing about like, you know, getting feminine and gender and old men are the only people to teach. But I mean, in addition to that, you can see how the experts are not there to teach them. 
So that could make that makes some sense, is all I'm saying. Okay. As evidenced in these traditions, the modern shah is a most picturesque institution. Four times each year, the organizations hold special ceremonies to perpetuate Four times each year, the organizations hold special ceremonies to perpetuate the memory of their heroes and to instill a respect for the noble and brave. That two of these four evenings should be given over to recalling past acts whose merit is their fierce adherence to a primitive sense of revenge will perhaps surprise the Western reader. On the 23rd of June, the lads journey on foot to a little hamlet some 25 miles from Kagoshima, where there is a shrine dedicated to one of their old feudal lords. Hmm, the 23rd of June. That, that might be an end to finding out what the actual historicity of this is. Let's see if there is a festival on the 23rd of June in Japan. That's nothing. Ah, I'm nothing. They're coming up with nothing. Ah, that's so frustrating. Okay, well anyway, on the 23rd of June, the lads journey on foot to a little hamlet some 25 miles from Kagoshima, where there is a shrine dedicated to one of their old feudal lords. Here they camp out overnight in the enclosure of the shrine, ready at the first gray of dawn to perform their sacred dance before the manes. Manes? That doesn't sound like a Japanese word. It would never end in an S. It would always be like maneshi or something like that. Huh. I don't know where he's getting that or why. I don't know. That's really weird. <laughs> Casting more and more doubt on this author <laughs> minute by minute here. This completed, a general pell-mell marathon race takes place back to a second shrine within the precincts of the city. With the rivalry which still exists between the societies, the affair becomes serious, the contestants frequently dropping from exhaustion along the route. But the 14th of September witnesses the greatest of the Shah festivals. The habitual evening repose of the city is banished by the alternating high and low notes of a martial chant as the Boy Scouts of feudal Japan march on their yearly pilgrimage to a shrine 20 miles inland. Hmm, 14th of September. Maybe that will turn up something. Damn it, I got nothing. Whatever. All through the late afternoon and early evening, the hills nearby have resounded with a fanfare that would be truly martial were the youthful buglers, but a trifle more adept. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Slam! Jesus. Okay. For this pilgrimage, the chigo, or junior members, don the ancient dress of a time, quote, when reds and blues were indeed red and blue, unquote. Hmm. The heavy cloth stuffs, which were the garb of the samurai on occasions which did not call for the more protecting but cumbersome armor, and were much worn even in battle by the rank and file. The older lads, those above 15 years old, make the journey clad in the full armor of metal and completely helmeted, a feat not to be carelessly undertaken. In each file is a boy carrying a streamer bearing the name of his organization, just as in past days the name of the knight in command was borne by his color bearer. With bugles blowing, pennants flying, 
and dressed in these heavy trappings of war, the samurai sons traversed the twenty miles to the village shrine consecrated to the greatest of Satsuma's warriors, Shimazu Yoshihisa. This Yoshihisa, the most notable of a notably warlike family, has been canonized by the Satsuma people for his bravery at the Battle of Sekigahara, the Japanese Marston Moor. I don't know what the Marston Moor is. On this occasion, he found himself, through the treachery of a supposed ally, in the midst of a fearful debacle, which threatened to annihilate his whole command. Undaunted, however, Yoshihisa formed a forlorn hope, and with some seventy of his men, cut his way through whole regiments of the victorious forces. The Satsuma people have that all-too-rare worship for the hero even in his defeat. It has probably never occurred to them that their lord was defeated. <laughs> he is their hero, and as such, still lives in their ceremonies. The last of the year's celebrations returns to the austere idea of revenge, which we saw characterizing the umbrella burning. On the evening of December 14th, the lads assemble in their respective shop, and under the leadership of their seniors, read that famous old drama of the 47 Ronin. The reading begins about seven, and is carried on continuously by alternating readers until 15 small volumes are gone through, usually about four in the morning. Wow, that's, that's dedication. <laughs> Maybe my next episode should be <laughs> something that goes till four in the morning. Would you listen to that, dear listener? I don't... That, I don't know. That would, be, that would be dedication. The story of the 47 Ronin is too long for detailed narration here, thank God. Indeed, it forms a history of itself, and it is too, and is too well known to foreign readers through Mitford's Tales of Old Japan to bear repetition. Suffice it to say that it is a story whose motif lies in a revenge brought about by 47 knights after long months had elapsed. By knights, he obviously means samurai. And Ronin, in case you don't already know, are samurai who no longer have a lord. So, they're masterless samurai. These samurai had formerly been attached to the service of a great lord, who, having got into a quarrel at the palace in ancient Tokyo, had attempted to assassinate his enemy. According to the old rules, such an attempt was punished by an enforced suicide and forfeiture of estate. These retainers, ever faithful to their lord, decided on revenge, and in order to divert suspicion became ronin, a sort of condottieri, and scattered all over the empire. Wow, I am so uh, amazed that every time that he seems to make a clarifying analogy, <laughs> I have no idea what it means. I'm much more familiar with what ronin means than condottieri. Let's find out what that is. Condottieri a leader or a member of a troop of mercenaries, especially in Italy. Okay. Well, that's not a very... A closer analogy is the knight errants that have no lord from medieval England or wherever. Anyway. The chief of these knights even went so far in his effort to blind the spies of the enemy as to divorce his wife, purchase a concubine, and frequent the gay quarters of the town in the hope that word of his dissoluteness would reach Tokyo. And there, I'm guessing in 1914, by gay, he probably doesn't mean homosexual. He probably means, like, um, pleasure centers of the town, you know, nightlife areas of the town. I imagine where you would, you know, hang out with various kinds of um, um, geisha and whatnot. 
While the leader was in the depths of his dissipation, a Satsuma samurai found him sleeping in a gutter, intoxicated and to show his contempt for a creature fallen so low that he refused to revenge his lord, kicked the drunken ronin and spat in his face. Wait, is he actually going to recount the whole story of the 47 ronin now after saying that he doesn't need to? <laughs> it seems like it. At length, the ruse of these men was successful. All suspicion was buried, the large guard which had been maintained in the Tokyo castle was dismissed, and these 47 men entered in the dead of night and wrought their vengeance. Having obtained satisfaction, these retainers dispatched themselves by Harakiri. Interesting, in 1914, he still uses Harakiri, which is the... It's kind of not really the accepted term anymore. That's more... Um, uh, what do I want to say? Slanderous? Kind of? It's not PC anymore. Seppuku. Seppuku is what you would call it if you want it to be PC now. Anyway, ritual suicide. Having obtained satisfaction, these retainers dispatched themselves by Harakiri and were all buried together in a cemetery which is now visited yearly by thousands of pilgrims. But it is a 48th grave which interests the Shaw boys, that of the Satsuma knight who had insulted the drunken leader in the street. Hearing that the dissipation of the chief of the band had been part of the general scheme, this old Satsuma warrior journeyed to the little shrine in the enclosure of the cemetery where they were interred, and beseeching pardon for his mistake, himself committed Harakiri. This, in outline, is the story hundreds of Satsuma youths listened to from the lips of their elders. Many writers have taken occasion to lament the influence that such teachings must have on the children. Yet, withal, it is such as was necessary to meet the demands of the morality of feudal Japan. Hmm. And that's nearly the end of the article. There's only one paragraph left. Here we go. Stern training in the heat of summer and the cold of winter, constant attention to the code of Bushido, which is, um, bushi means night, basically, in Japan, and do means way, so the way of the knights, the way of the nobles, the way of the, of the samurai, basically Japanese chivalry, and to a medieval ethics, together with a sterling sense of loyalty to the lord and piety towards parents, were the services which these societies of Boy Scouts in feudal Japan were organized to promote. And that's the end of the article. And I still don't know who these Boy Scouts were. <laughs> ah! Ah, oh, that's, oh, that's so frustrating. Huh. Well, I mean, we got a very, you know, if we just take this article at its word, it, it totally told us everything about them. It's, I mean, it's pretty clear. But I couldn't find anything that has let me find, by Googling or whatever, any other reference to this phenomenon. Now I know it, okay, so... One thing you learn if you travel around Japan, or I guess if you, you know, read a lot about it, um, is there are so many teeny tiny little traditions in every little nook and cranny of, you know, Japan, that it's totally believable that somewhere in Japan there's definitely this going on. And, you know, if maybe this is still to this day a tradition in Kagoshima. I don't know. I never heard of it that way, but then I wasn't teaching in Kagoshima. I just visited there, and I would never have known, perhaps. So maybe this is not a dead idea. Maybe it's a totally a thing even to this day. Or maybe it existed and now it's a dead idea. It just doesn't really exist anymore. Or maybe this author, um, C.A. Hibbard, 
totally got his shit wrong <laughs> and misunderstood whatever it is that he saw and this is not even a thing maybe these kids were really just doing you know kendo or whatever and kind of celebrating some regular festivals that took place in their town that's entirely believable to me too and um for the the pictures that are part of this because it, this article here this pdf i got from unz.org um, there are some pictures from the original publication that are shown here and one of them definitely looks like they're doing kendo that's for sure um, another looks like they're doing jujitsu and he mentioned jujitsu yeah another shows them all dressed up in traditional samurai wear and they look to be oh as young as i would guess maybe like six seven eight probably seven or eight i would guess up to maybe teenagers probably late teenagers like 18 perhaps um but none of that really tells me anything that establishes what historical tradition to link this up to i still don't know who the shah are in a bigger context oh well either that's great or that's terrible <laughs> you decide listener you decide um so that's the Boy Scouts of Feudal Japan, and that is uh, the kickoff for our uh, off-week episodes to do in between doing the main series, the epic series, which we've got going on right now, our series on cuneiform, ancient Mesopotamia, Samaria, and uh, Babylonia, and all that. Next, we'll definitely come back with something different, but I want to actually hit Japan a number of times, maybe not number of times in a row, but I want to keep coming back to this because this is something, obviously it was a big part of my life, and um, there's a lot more to be done. And in fact, I definitely want to do a number of episodes on something called the Buddhist mummies of Japan. Yes, they were, they were mummies of Japan, and they didn't just get mummified by accident. In fact, you self-mummified, <laughs> believe it or not. And these, and you did that by doing this crazy regimen of uh, diet where you basically end up eating only things from trees by the end of it, and you know you're going to die from it. But if you do it right, you basically mummify yourself while you're still alive. And then when you die, um, they dig you up uh, like three years later or three months later or three years later or something like that, and you may have become a mummy if you did it right. Isn't that crazy? And it's almost completely unknown in the Western world. In fact, there's only one book, one book, as far as I can tell, in the English language on this phenomenon. So we're definitely going to do that. One book. <laughs> I could single-handedly be the authoritative voice in podcasting on the Buddhist mummies of Japan, easily. Because <laughs> nobody talks about this. And I got to see several of them when I was uh, traveling around Japan. It's amazing. So we're definitely going to do that. And we're going to do a whole bunch else. I don't know what we'll do next time. We'll just have to see. Okay, so upon thinking about it, here's what I kind of think probably is going on with this article in the Shah. So in Japanese, the part the word Shah can mean lots of things. It can mean a car, it can mean a whole bunch of things, but one of the things that it can mean is an organization or a society, or you know, kind of like a club or something. And um I don't know, I kind of think that this guy maybe just found some kids practicing martial arts and some other traditional things while he was traveling, and just in his mind kind of drew a circle around those like they're a thing, 
but maybe it wasn't really like a specific named thing, like a like a specific tradition. It was just like them practicing their local, you know, cultural memory or whatever you want to call it. And those particular things they were doing kind of reminded him of the Boy Scouts of the West, which was, of course, founded with the intention, as I understand it, I think, to basically build survival skills and a kind of martial spirit in the youth. And uh, he saw this these Shaw kids as doing something kind of similar, kind of like keeping alive a sort of martial spirit from their past. And I imagine he probably inquired about it. And when he asked them, what do you call this? They probably said, this is our club. <laughs> but he probably took that word Shaw, if that's what they used, to, you know, mean something much more narrow and specific. That's that's my guess. Again, I have no clue or idea. But that's the best that I can come up with for an explanation for this. But take it or leave it. Take it for what you will. That's that's the best I can come up with. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, by the way, in the intervening time between I first recorded this and now I'm recording this, um, Rachel actually came up with a name for these shorter pieces in between the epic series episodes. She thinks we should call them the wild card episodes, and I kind of like that. It's a whole lot better than calling them the off week episodes or the in betweeners or something like that. <laughs> the wild cards, and and that's basically what you can expect from these 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 episodes. So you know, a little bit shorter, but also a little bit more unpredictable a little more full of hidden potential, a little less scripted, a little more rambly, and maybe even a little more personal. I mean, you've already kind of, you know, got a little bit of my travel sneaking into this episode, and I might just kind of run with that a little bit, let you get to know me a little bit more, you know, a little bits, but bit by bit, bit by bit with these things. I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, who knows what will happen with these? They're the wild cards. So see you next time. Next week will be, you know, more on the cuneiform, then after that we'll have another wild card. Alright, take it easy, see you later. I'm BT Newberg and this is Dead Ideas on the Wild Card.